Hello and welcome to episode number 28 of the Flytrap Podcast. Make sure to hit that like button and subscribe for more episodes. On today's episode, I have Decker Dreyer, also known as the Phantom Astronaut. Decker is an artist working in film, visual art, and music. I first discovered Decker through TikTok, where he posts AI-generated art created by Midjourney. I'm a huge fan of his work because I love the theme. It's sort of like a cyberpunk story theme. If you would like to check out his work, I will make sure to link it in the description down below. Anyways, that's it for me. I hope you guys all enjoy the episode. I I, I didn't get to have my coffee this morning, so I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> oh man! Well, this is uh, this is in your honor then. <laughs> all right. So what's going on? What do you want to talk about, man? All right, Decker, nice to meet you. Is that, did I pronounce it correctly or you go no, both? That's correct. Yep. Decker, Dreyer, correct? That's right. Okay, perfect. I just wanted to... Yeah, and uh, you got the last name. And um, what's funny about that is that uh, normally it, it, it's, it should be fairly easy phonetically, right? But um, a lot of people skip that that E, <laughs> so I end up with Dreyer all the time. Well, funny enough, I always, I, whenever it comes to people's last names, I always get really nervous that, about pronouncing it wrong wrong and so i went online and i was like i looked you up and i found like a previous interview that someone mm -hmm. did and i heard the way he said it and so i didn't hear you correct him <laughs> and i was like All right, i figured that's how his last name is pronounced well thank you i appreciate that <laughs> well first of all welcome my name is christian i'm the host of the flat trap podcast it's a pleasure having you on uh, i was really excited to to do this episode, um, my one of my buddies was the one that introduced me to your work. Um, we discovered you on TikTok. Right on. Um, go by the name of a Phantom Astronaut. So, you know, I was doing a little bit of research about, you know, the work that you do. I see that you're, you know, you're a composer, uh, film, um, um, film director, um, mm -hmm. and as well as an artist and also heavily involved in the AR uh, community. Mm -hmm. um, one question that I have is how did you come up with the idea of this uh, Phantom Astronaut? <clears throat> well, uh, I'd been using the name Phantom Astronaut for a couple of years, and um, I really appreciate this because no one's actually, no one's ever asked me, you know, what it means. They usually are just like, oh, the, um, oh, ghost astronauts, you know, that looks cool, right? <laughs> it's kind of like this trope. But the uh, the name itself has um, has its origins in the idea that, you know, I, I have a little bit of like, not social anxiety per se, but I feel a little detached, like like I think everybody does it sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, you're, especially in the times that we live, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing events unfold you know, maybe you feel a little bit drained um, and you don't want to engage. I mean, we just spent, you know, two years or, you know, plus with a pandemic and, and all this stuff. Um, so I think a lot more people can relate now. But uh, I used to just have this idea of like being this disembodied observer of everything that was unfolding. Right. Mm -hmm. So to me, that combined with the iconography of the uh, the lost cosmonaut, right, sort of became phantom astronaut, this intangible person being whatever that's just kind of observing things that are that are happening around them. So that's kind of what that that ended up meaning. Um, as for the iconography itself, I think that started with uh, like Scooby-Doo back in the 60s or 70s, they had a <laughs> they had a phantom astronaut on there. And, you know, you see it pop up in pop culture every once in a while. But uh, I don't know. I just gravitated toward it. So, it's funny that you say, like, what's not funny that, you, you know, you said that uh, you, know, you feel like you have social anxiety. I feel that I, I have that as well. And, I, and that's a big reason why I do the podcast is to get out of my comfort zone and talk to people. <laughs> um, 
Do you feel oh, like- funny? I do have another funny anecdote about the Phantom Astronaut, though, before we moved on. No worries. Um, <laughs> I have a friend of mine. His name is Mike. And uh, he did a, a voice of a character on a cartoon called Venture Brothers. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Cartoon. Yeah, I have. I, I, I've I, seen the cartoon. I've never really watched the, <laughs> the show, but I, I know which one you're talking about. It comes out on, on Adult Swim, correct? On Adult Swim, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's just, it's really funny. Another another guy I'm collaborating with, uh, his sister was also on the show. Uh, he's a, a director. He did a movie called SLC Punk. And uh, his sister was on the show and she was married to the guy who created the show. So there's this all this like Venture Brothers energy, you know, <laughs> happening in my universe. And they had an episode <laughs> where they go to like a, the Bermuda Triangle and they have like Phantom Spaceman you know, in that. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah. I don't know. I guess there was just something in the zeitgeist with it. So you drew some inspiration from the yeah. Venture Brothers, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, there's was, there was something definitely like in the psychic ether of it. Yeah, I, I really like, uh, you know, the kind of the dystopian vibe that a lot of your work gives off. Um, it's, you know, it's dark and eerie. And that's something that like I was trying to like, you know, guess embody with this podcast. And I came across you and I was like, man, this guy does it really well. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I uh, The TikTok thing was uh, was kind of a wild experiment for me. Did you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I said, I, that's how I discovered your work, um, you know, kind of using. So how do you generate your, your TikToks? It's, it's just mainly just using, you know, the AI um, art system that has been out there. I've kind of started playing with that. Um, yeah, there's a uh, there's a an app that's called Mid Journey. And uh, it's one of these AI image generation apps. And I I'm not aesthetically, I'm not super locked in with um, with a lot of the stuff that I see that's AI, right? right. Um, it's kind of janky. It feels a little, I look, I don't want to, I don't want to be that, that guy. Like a lot of it feels kind of generic, um, because of the way that the people have, you know, they construct their prompts. Cause there's a lot of people yeah. who are, the way these work is you write essentially a text description of what you want the AI to create for you. And I think a lot of people go in there and they start playing with it and they start saying like, oh, I want to see this thing, but they don't really tell the, the AI system what they want it to look like. Right. So that was the first gap that I had to cross. I had to go from the understanding that you can control that part of the process a little bit. You can almost like a film director direct what you want it to create for you. Um, the second part of it is figuring out how to speak the language of the AI. Because uh, if you'll notice, like a lot of the Phantom Astronaut stuff is very visually consistent in a way right. that a lot of AI stuff isn't. So that comes from understanding, you know, the the way that the AI system hears you, right? So there are certain words that I use, which may be completely counterintuitive to what you would think I would use for certain right. things. I know and a lot of times yeah. when I'm playing with the, the AI, I've played with, I've just discovered like Mid Journey, but then uh, it's Dale, it's D-A-L-L-E. And yeah, I like yeah. when I type something in, a lot of what comes out is kind of the same thing as far as like the faces that are distorted. And I know in some of your work, some of the faces are kind of clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I still struggle with that because the AI struggles with it. But um, <clears throat> I kind of worked into, I, I wanted to create an aesthetic that that felt, um, I wanted to create an aesthetic that felt eerie and unsettling, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to do it in a in a conventional way. So I sort of settled on this idea that that they would look sort of halfway between old Polaroid photographs, like from the 70s and 80s, and also a little bit of um, some of that great like comic book cover artwork 
that was not necessarily photoreal, but rendered interestingly from like comic books of that period, like uh, New Mutants and, and stuff like that. Right. So there's um, there's kind of that that middle ground between the two where it, it seems photographic, but also somehow illustrated. So I, I worked at that for a couple of months, um, you know, before I was able to lock in with with an aesthetic that I liked. But I'd also been thinking about how to use TikTok for like a year. <laughs> I mean, I know I'd been I've been on TikTok, um, not as a creator, but I've been on TikTok since like 2017 or something like that. So or 2018, I've been on TikTok a really long time. Yeah, it, it's definitely uh, a different place now than it was. I would say. Yeah, I used to be on there like I because I would scroll through and I was like, this is amazing. This is just like kind of like this dumping ground of humanity. Because <laughs> flip through stuff now for real. You'd like flip through things, and um, at first it was it was a lot of lip lip sync stuff, right? right. I don't think they called it TikTok back then. I think it was a uh, musically before. <clears throat> yeah. Then as soon as it became TikTok, um, this crazy thing happened and you started seeing like a lot of people from the fringes of society making videos about like sort of their daily experiences. So, and when I say that, I mean like really, really out there, you know, kind of stuff. You would get um, like far right conspiracy people who were walking up to uh, government facilities and like screaming at the security guards and, and doing sovereign citizen stuff. You would get, um, you know, unhoused people, you know, uh, showing like giving basically like MTV Cribs tours of their of their tents and, and stuff like that. And, you know, right. then asking for donations like it was just a wild west of, of strange content. And I, I was really interested in it because I like the format. I like that, you know, it just kind of feeds you stuff. It's sort of like old school TV and you're just flipping through the channels, right? Right. Of course, it and, gives you what you want, the algorithm. To yeah, after you train it. And you can retrain it. People don't talk about that, but you can retrain your algorithm, you know, uh, pretty quickly by by deciding what you like and how long you stay on stuff and whatever you can decide what channels you want to tune into but i don't think people are are as active with that as they could be there um so for about the last year i was like okay well i want to create on the platform but you know i'm not uh, you know the work that i make isn't really driven by me as a personality right mm -hmm. so it's a little bit harder because it also seems like the more successful stuff on there is like a parasocial kind of relationship and I wanted to do narrative storytelling. So um, I don't think, I mean, now I've started to see a very, very few people uh, propping up about the same time that I started making these about, you know, maybe a month, month and a half ago. Uh, they started popping up on there trying to do this similar kind of narrative stuff, but it's right. still just a very few people compared to the overall TikTok thing. And I didn't know if the algorithm on TikTok would be excited by it. I didn't know if the users would be interested in, in taking a look at it. But um, I knew that I had to be able to make a lot of content quickly. So, um, you know, I'm like writing is not a, a, a huge burden for me. And these are fairly small stories, you know, between six and 15 individual slides. Right. They're almost like um, like little children's books, you know, kind of compressed oh, down, right. horrifying children's <laughs> books. And um, I can... I, I built a runway of content, meaning that I, I have like a backlog of stuff that it, that's already made that I can post. And I, I, I can post, at least in the beginning, I was posting between three and five of them a day. Now I've cooled down a little bit. Now I do like one or two a day, mm -hmm. you know, so people don't get tired of them. But um, what was crazy about it is like the AI, without AI, you couldn't do something like this because of the amount of content that TikTok wants before it starts to show your 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 site or your um, account to other people. <clears throat> so if you were a comic illustrator or something and you were doing like three panel comic strips or whatever, it takes a long time to make a comic strip. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it doesn't take a, an insignificant amount of time to do the um, the AI prompts either uh, because to get something that's usable, I end up making 
maybe anywhere between 20 and 50 variations for each frame until I find, until I'm able to like get the text right and everything for a frame that comes out that looks, you know, usable to me. So it does take time, but it's not as much time as if I was hand drawing, you know, sequential artwork. Right. Yeah. I, I can imagine that would take a long time as someone who doesn't, you know, or can't draw. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that would take me an immense amount of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done illustration and, and stuff in the past. And that's another funny, funny thing is that a lot of people who um, uh, some comments that I've gotten are like, oh, well, this isn't as good as traditional art. And, you know, <laughs> this is going to ruin art. And I'm like, I have done almost every medium of traditional art. I'm, I'm a trained, uh, you know, illustrator. I mean, like, I'm very very dialed in visually and i and i know the craft and i have no problem with the, using ai as a tool so, so that, was, that was one of the questions <laughs> that i wanted to ask you is as far as you know being a creative what is your you know your your take as far as you know all these ai that are coming out and being able to produce like this creative content um oh. i know uh, starting to see you know ai that can produce music now um how do you feel as a individual creator how does it do you think that takes away from i guess your imagination or your creative process no i don't think so at all i i i know that my view is in the minority um regarding the interaction between between artist and, and ai right because the ai doesn't make anything on its own you can you can tell it make me a hundred versions of something but it doesn't start that process you know uh, independent of the artist i i like that i like that there's a tool there that allows me to to curate now is it a little frustrating that things don't come out exactly like they are in my mind's eye right. no, a little bit but uh having a having a background where i've done illustration and also you know, photography, I, I started my career as a photographer, um, you know, shooting uh, uh, bands for, you know, like Spin Magazine and, and stuff like right. that back in the day. So I understand that when you're doing that kind of photography, you also don't get the exact image that you want. You get these what are called happy accidents, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I look at it as, as a collaborative environment where the artist has the intent and the artist has the final like curation. They're just removing uh, a few steps in the process. And it's similar to working on a film where, you know, you might have different departments who are, you know, handling different things and they're bringing you stuff as a director um you know and you're like oh that costume is rad yeah let's use that costume or oh yeah let's i love the way that that set looks can you make it a little more like this so that dialogue that communication i think is second nature to people who work in collaborative artistic environments people that i see most frustrated by ai art uh there was only one comment i i in the last month and a half i think i had like since we started doing this 15 16 million plays and wow. uh we had uh, right now we're up to a million and a half likes on the thing. Um, uh, we've grown almost to a hundred thousand followers. We're like in the mid uh, eighty thousands now. Right, and it's like this is uh, this is really really cool because I've only had one really negative comment that we've removed, and it was somebody <laughs> went on like a. <clears throat> They went on a big rant about like you know this is this is garbage because AI is garbage and it's ruining <laughs> opportunities for real artists and like I went to their Instagram and look I'm not gonna be a snob everybody is doing everything everybody starts their journey differently <clears throat> but this person you know they had like a hundred ish followers and they were like really really young and uh, and I want to like I want them to be encouraged I want I don't want them to feel to feel hopeless um, they were drawing they were drawing like you know like Pokemon fan art and stuff like that and. I looked at that and so I didn't, I didn't talk to them. I didn't engage with them. I just hid the comment on the thing, you know, because I, I don't think they understood where they were coming from. Cause I, right. I think when you have young artists who are sort of working in a vacuum, 
<clears throat> they feel that I, I'm so sorry. Let me mute my microphone one second. Let me. No worries. Off. There we go. Sorry about that. the weather too uh, this week. So I get it. <laughs> I went to a, I went to a, to a mall last night. I'll tell you about that in a minute, but you've got these artists that, um, you know, are, are working in a vacuum. They're young and they, it's just them and their, their pens and paper and they're alone in their, their their studio and they feel like they're really working hard to perfect it. And I always tell them that, you know, art inherently is not a competitive sport, mm -hmm. right? However you express your idea, however you communicate that idea outward into the world is valid. So if the way that they're articulating their ideas is through that pen and that paper and they're putting it out there, you're not inherently in competition with anybody who's making AI artwork. When you start seeing things as in, well, this is the real kind of artwork and this isn't because I'm using a pencil, it's a very narrow view mm -hmm. of the landscape of, of all the different kinds of art that can be produced and are produced, you know, in uh, in human culture for the last 10,000 plus years. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I, I know, especially as someone, you know, who puts out content, you know, as I, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm an artist, but as a creative in a way, you know, you want to feel that, that validation. And, you know, when someone, you know, is doing something outside of, you know, what, you know, you might be putting out mm -hmm. and someone who is just starting off, that can be, you know, a little um, challenging, I would say. Mm. Um, but I, the way I look at it is like, I, I see it as art and, you know, the creative space being you know, a, a collaborative environment. And it's important to look at what other people are doing, try to get inspiration for your own work. Right. Um, and so, and, you know, as someone as, you know, that's young, just might not be experienced enough to understand or have that understanding of how that, you know, that art creative process, you know, yeah. work. I mean, it has a lot to do with environment too, you know, like a, a lot of um, aspiring young artists, they're coming from a, a home environment, which may not be I mean, it's kind of a trope at this point, but like, oh, you know, my parents don't want me to to die a starving artist and they're pushing you into, you know, something else and they're diminishing, you know, the value of, of the artistic output because they want, you know, their their child to have a more quote unquote safe and stable career path. You know, whether those exist or not anymore is up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> whether anything is as stable or less stable than producing producing art is uh you know i don't know i mean we... it's, it's crazy to see you know the, i i think a lot of it has to do with you know social media with you mm -hmm. know this exposure to i guess an alternative way to make a living you know you see people you know going back on tiktok you know you're you're you know you encounter those people that make you know a great living you know just dropping off dumpsters at you know a, a site and collecting trash and take it off mm -hmm. and that's their business and you know that i think that's the beauty of like tiktok and you know, social media is that like people get to get exposed to, you know, you don't have to work a corporate job to make right. a living nowadays. And uh, I'm, uh, there are people that are in my similar age bracket that they, they can't wrap their head around because they, they work for just like I, I, I sometimes still do and did more frequently in the past work for like studios like Warner brothers and, you know, Disney and stuff like that. And, you know, in their mind, they're like, oh, I work on this movie or I work you know, on the project at this studio and then they pay me the money and then whatever. And that's their whole pipeline for, for content and media, right? right? In terms of economics, you know, they asked me, they're like, oh, so what have you been up to the last couple of years? Uh, Cause we don't see you doing very many studio projects and stuff anymore. And, you know, it's like, well, there's kind of a, a hodgepodge of different 
different stuff because I, I have a Patreon. Uh, I still do some some client work with studios and ad agencies. Um, but even Meta, uh, Facebook, even they pay me like directly, uh, you know, to be on uh, to to be posting stuff on um, on my page, you know, over there. I probably wouldn't still be on Facebook if you know Facebook wasn't paying good money for you know for creators to you know be posting on it. But um, you know, reels you get paid for those. Um, Right now we're we're starting up a YouTube. There's creator fund that's going on uh, on TikTok. So it's right. kind of like all these different things. It's like none of them individually are the kind of money that you know you you'd be making at a um, at one of these old you know studio paradigms, right? But collectively, it's more. <laughs> so you know you have to kind of like people can't get in that brain that like if you if you have a fan base of like a hundred thousand people, you can make a great living. You know, uh, just making content and not having to go through the gatekeepers, the traditional gatekeepers. Right. Yeah. Though that's. I mean, for me, I think I struggle with that too as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I you know I was raised with the mindset you know of going to college, and you know I went to college, graduated from college, and. You know, have that mindset that you have to go to college and then you have to, you know, you get that corporate job. I still struggle with, you know, I see, you know, the amount of people that make their living from social media, but I just, I can't wrap my mind around it. I guess it's just because I haven't been, you know, I haven't been involved in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, but it just really blows my mind that that's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, I also think social media to a certain extent is dead. I don't, I think the term, I think Twitter and everything that's been going on with it recently with, with Elon Musk uh, mm -hmm. acquiring it and the, the chaos that's kind of ensued has really shown the, the difference between a true social media platform and something that I've always thought of as not really social media, mm -hmm. uh, more of a traditional media that allows for um for you know people outside of a gate kept system to to put content into it i'll explain it this way so like you have twitter and facebook right these are sites where grandma might put her her recipe for your favorite dessert right right and then she's sharing it ostensibly with just you know her family and friends and one of her friends might think it's a really great recipe and share it with a group of people that like desserts or something like that right that's real deep down social media as people understand it to be mm -hmm. and content creators have traditionally struggled accepting um accepting that these platforms like twitter and, and meta can be places where your work can uh can really you know sort of rise to the top and i don't disagree with them because that's not why the users are there that's not what the audience is there for the audience is there to communicate with their with their network of peers. Mm -hmm. When you look at something like YouTube, uh, when you look at TikTok, these are not, to me, social media networks. Even though they're called social media, what they are is they're user-generated content networks. They are an alternative to like cable TV or anything like that. They are they are people who are creating media outside of a gate-kept ecosystem, and it is sort of pushed to you, right? Mm -hmm. You're not actively... Um, sometimes on YouTube, you might search a term or whatever, but if you just go to the homepage on YouTube for yourself, you know, you get this giant curated list of like videos that are recommended for you and all whatever. So this is much more of a um, traditional content relationship. And I see the social media, whenever they try to do content over on their own platforms, you know, it, it just doesn't, it just falls flat because the users aren't there for that. But YouTube, TikTok and things of that nature, the users are there to be entertained. The users are there to uh, find new artists and uh, and personalities to gravitate to toward. Same with Twitch. You know, I mean, it's like these are not social media. 
whether they want to call themselves social media or not. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting take. I, you know, I always considered, you know, YouTube to be an alternative to TV as well, but I still consider it a, a social media because, you know, you still have that interaction between, you know, someone who's commenting on a video. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an interesting take to have. Um, yeah, but I, the users are there, to, but the conversation centers around the content on YouTube. No, exactly. Right? That's a, it's, a, it's all centered on that, on that, on that object. On the other thing, the content almost feels like a distraction because you'll see like if you post something on, on Facebook, you know, and you're like, you know, your 50 year old uncle or whatever is like, why did you post this stuff? Why, why is this on my timeline? You know, you put up a music video and they're like, why is this, why is this appearing when I log in? It's like, <laughs> I think I, I, I keep referencing Reddit as far as like one of the, the best, I guess, platforms for, I guess, if you would consider a social media platform, but it's yeah. always centered around content yep. and you know, you know, you post content that's outside of that subreddit, people get really ticked off. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing, though. It's like it's it's categorized correctly, right? Exactly. So, you know, with social media, it's not. It's just a random collection of of family and friends who have different alt, like expectations of what they're going to get when they log in. And uh, it's it's just really funny. But like Reddit is kind of an, an old school news group, right? Mm -hmm. Um back in the back in the way 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 back you know like 1990s or whatever when i was literally a child and you know i would get on the internet you would go to what are called news groups and they were just like subreddits and uh but they you, they just had their own ip addresses mm -hmm. so reddit kind of like created this great visually cohesive user-friendly system that collects all of that kind of culture and puts it onto um to one singular spot so you know that's it's kind of cool how like reddit feels still feels kind of fresh but is probably like the oldest form of uh communication on the internet yeah it's it's it honestly it blows it, it like it amazes me the amount of people that are on reddit and are actively you know posting on there and it's for just a subcategory you know but anyways so going back to you know your work you know you mentioned earlier that you have a whole backlog of creative ideas Mm -hmm. you know, when you're making these 15 to 30 second clips of mm -hmm. you know, these slides, do you write, <clears throat> you already have the story already made of what you want to tell and you just input to the AI to be able to communicate that story or you go and just start playing with the AI first and then you write the story? Um, well, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a little of both and a little of neither. So uh, I'll, I'll walk you through the whole process. Just take a second. I start with a general concept. So I know that um, I need to get the characters from point A to point B. And I usually start by thinking, okay, this is going to be six frames, eight frames, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. So then um, from there, I, I figure out roughly what each of those frames needs to be to tell this story visually and then i start generating them then um then i'll write the dialogue for each frame because there are certain things like as it comes out you're like okay well maybe this the way that that guy's face looks maybe his name maybe this is gonna be daryl i'm gonna, I'm gonna name him <laughs> daryl right you know like maybe maybe this is gonna be you know whatever and oh maybe it takes place here or, or takes place here or there and, and whatever so i kind of like get inspired by what the ai generates based on my initial input this is why it's kind of cool and collaborative mm -hmm. so then i'll bring that uh into into the TikTok app and i'll start inputting the dialogue onto stuff and i'll like manipulate the frames you know the order of them and, and different stuff inside of the um because these are all done as slideshows inside they're not they're not traditional videos yeah. so i can kind of move the frames around inside of it and then i'll, I'll preview it a couple times and i'll be like you know what mm, i'm missing something here 
like it jumps from here to here too quick or maybe this you know needs to resolve in a different way here so then i'll actually go back and i'll make revisions and i'll make i'll generate more stuff inside of the ai or, or alternative stuff and then i'll go back into TikTok, start the process over again and um and then finally you know it'll be it'll be finished so ultimately each one of these experiences couple of slides together might take as long as three hours to build so you know it's not quite as easy as like you know recording a, a TikTok dance in front of a phone <laughs> like that. uh you know there's there is a serious time commitment that you're putting into it and it, you know it it doesn't it doesn't bother me you know when people go on there and again it's so few and far between where people are like oh these are just made by ai but every once in a while i'll look at that and i'll, I'll just look at it and go ah, you know <laughs> It's like, if you only knew, man, if you only knew. <laughs> That's the thing that people don't understand, the amount of time that it takes to, to, mm -hmm. to do this creative work. I don't begrudge them for not understanding the process. Yeah, though. but I, 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 I genuinely love the, you know, the, I guess the, the hate comments that people put. It's kind of funny in a way. I guess the I've had almost nothing but positive comments, so I'm I've been like really excited about that. Well, that's great. I <laughs> I, I mentioned this in my last uh, podcast uh, episode. I was you know I was looking for you know I, so I interviewed a corporate former corporate spy, and mm -hmm. I posted on Reddit you know my interview, and then I just got torn apart in the comments as far as like my interview skills. And I was mm -hmm. like, you know what, that's fine. It's I'm learning. Uh, but depends I, on the platform. Yeah, I, I generally enjoy those comments because in the way I see it is like feedback. But um, as, as far as you know, your work going back to your work, I, mm -hmm. how do you see you know your content evolving to mm -hmm. storytelling? I know a lot of people they you know, eventually they have to evolve their work because they don't want you know their audience to die out or get bored mm -hmm. with the content, like you said earlier. Where do you want to take this storytelling or this content that you're making? That's a good question. I, one of the, I, I don't know. Um, there's no there's no ongoing larger plan for this right now. <clears throat> some people have said that they might want a, um, some people have said that they might want to have a um, an art book, you know, of these stories. Um, so, you know, maybe that's something that we can explore like on the horizon. You know, a lot of, uh, of, of people have been commenting and I found out that, you know, there's not an insignificant amount of fans that are in Utah, weirdly enough. Uh, and so, you know, they, they're all over the world, but there was like a concentration of like 10 or 15 people who were in Utah that were replying on this one that I did recently. And um, and I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to be up there for um, the Slamdance Film Festival, which I'm, I'm involved in uh, in January. Maybe we can do like a Salt Lake City meetup. So maybe I'll be able to meet some of these TikTok uh you know, fans in person, that'd be really cool. But as far as evolving the work, you know, I, I'm not sure yet. It's still, it's still really, really new, but I will say that there've been some challenges. Um, and a lot of it revolves around like just the medium itself. There's a content moderation component that, um, you know, I have to walk a really, really fine line because this is this is horror content. Some of it mm -hmm. is uh, grotesque and uh, it has like kind of sometimes like Clive Barker-y, Cronenberg, you know kind of kind of notes to it so i have to be really really careful and do a lot of self-examination when i put something up to be like this is what i really want it to be maybe it won't pass the moderation right, right. so so i do self-censor a little bit so maybe if i did make that art book there might be some of the more wild out there things that i've generated there that end up in there that couldn't be posted on the medium right um 
And I recently had an issue with this. I the, the last thing that's currently on my TikTok is a re-upload, a modified re-upload of a uh, of an older piece. When I say older piece, I mean like from yesterday. TikTok moves really, really quick. Because <laughs> I woke up and my I woke up and it was gone. And I'm like, what? What's going on? And then I saw that it had a community violation. And um and I was like, what? Why do I have a community violation? And it turned out, so I'd created this story. Uh, do you know Do you know what a gremlin is? Oh, of course. Yeah, that was one of my, my favorite movies, a Christmas movie yeah. growing up. <laughs> so they had the movie Gremlins, but he, Gremlins themselves, the idea of this like impish evil creature that mm -hmm. you know, sort of destroys mechanical equipment, that sort of started in World War II. That um, they used to say like, oh, uh, if this plane you know wasn't properly maintained or if something weird happened to it electrically or or whatever they would say oh gremlins got it right so that's where this sort of folklore came from that there were these gremlins that were you know little little creatures that would destroy motorized equipment mm -hmm. during the battle i was like man i really like that folklore of gremlins maybe i'll make something about a gremlin and so i wrote this story about how um uh white supremacist conspiracy theorist guy mm -hmm gets his hands on a uh, a really rusted, falling apart, 1939, World War II, essentially Nazi Mercedes-Benz. Right. Right. And he, he buys this at an auction, and then uh, the mechanic shop that he works at is letting him work on it and restore it on the weekends and then he's going to sell it to this like you know, uh, like Grand Wizard of the KKK or something once it's restored. And the uh, the whole thing about it is that all of these cars that are also in the in the garage that he has supposed to work on that's his job every time uh, a new car goes out the customers come back because there's other things that are wrong with it it's broken still and so this has been happening consistently and this guy starts getting in his head and he screams at one of these customers who's bringing it back he's like uh, who is a Jewish customer and he's like you know you you people are always trying to get something for free and blah blah blah. Because this is a white supremacist character. He's an anti-Semitic character. Mm -hmm. And we're not supposed to be sympathetic to him, right? And then it turns out, you know, that this uh, this Nazi car that he bought at auction has a literal gremlin in it. And then uh, he, you know, in the end of it, you know, he encounters the gremlin and through circumstances, the entire mechanic shop burns down and he's locked inside of it. And uh, then the car goes back to another auction and you kind of see the cycle starting again. The cycle, so, right. Yeah, so you get this nice, this nice cathartic thing of seeing this this anti-Semitic a-hole, you know, blaming whoever and everything around him, conspiracies, and then you know he gets his comeuppance, right? That's kind of a hallmark of some of the the horror stories that people find most fun. It's like you know, oh, I really like seeing this this horrible person getting getting what they deserve, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I put that up, and it got taken down for being anti-Semitic. <laughs> you know, you were trying to tell a story, guys. Yeah, and I'm like, ah, it's not anti. I'm like, it's it's literally the opposite of anti-Semitic. It's like literally, it's literally a story about an anti-Semitic person being divinely punished by by a by a monster. It's like it's literally the opposite of anti-Semitism. But um, that's I so I got my first like community flag. I guess I mm. posted like a clip of you know one of my episodes, and I like put like. A little gift on there and it was it was like it was a brief moment of like someone like a spy shooting a gun mm -hmm. and i got a like i got a like a community violation for showing gun violence i was like it was a third like it was literally a split second like how so i had to i guess uh submit a justification of why i had that and they mm -hmm. uploaded but yeah they didn't work I, I know you have to watch what you put on you know to, to TikTok. 
Um, but I would love to see, you know, if you were to do an art book, that was one of the things that when I first discovered, you know, your, your content, I went to your website, and I was looking to see if you had you know, an art book. Of, you know, mm. these, uh, slides. Yeah, I'm thinking about doing it. I'm doing a lot of galleries uh, here in LA for the last couple of years. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that, that might be kind of cool. I mean, I have a, a whole series of, um, you know, sort of <clears throat> dark uh ethereal tarot cards that are done in uh 3d that you know are kind of kind of cool and kind of uh i don't know if you saw that on site but if anybody wants to check out phantomastronaut.com you can see like these these really fun tarot cards that i'm doing they're really non-traditional but um but kind of cool and they're, they're nfts correct they're going to be nfts well yeah some of them are available as nfts like pay, I, I have them for my patrons um and what we nfts man that's a whole other thing because i don't want to be uh <laughs> It's a, it, I don't understand it. I, I keep asking, yeah. you know, my friends all these questions about it. I don't. I don't think I will ever understand yeah. it. Uh, the NFT thing is uh, is is weird. I'm. I wrote a whole article on NFTs for uh, for a website recently, and really just from the artist perspective. And my whole thesis is like. <clears throat> All the arguments against NFTs, which include, you know, financial manipulation and, you know, environmental concerns. I don't feel that artists who a lot of them are 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 struggling. A lot of them are not in the same kind of, you know, position, you know, that I'm I'm thankful to to kind of have. You know, they need other ways to to monetize their work. They need to say to sustain themselves. And, you know, if NFTs allow them another opportunity to sell their work, I don't think anybody should begrudge them from doing that. So for me, what I mostly do with NFTs is um, I do art drops for my Patreon patrons. And those are on a, uh, a crypto coin called Tazos. Mm-hmm which uh, has always run on um, green energy. It, it didn't have the same carbon footprint as uh, as the other ones. And it's kind of obscure and the value is really low and, and, and stuff like that. So you could get like, you know, like you can probably buy one Tazos for like, you know, like a penny or something like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's insane, right? So I... um. And there's an, a marketplace called Object with a K, which is also like kind of this cool underdog kind of platform. It's not like, you know, OpenSea or one of these, you know, gigantic ones. And so I was like, okay, well, this is kind of cool because if it's carbon, if it really is, you know, low carbon or carbon neutral or whatever, the buy-in, like people are not speculating on this currency. This isn't like something that's that people are pumping. I'm like, okay, I feel comfortable saying that if people want this artwork as NFTs, um, what they can do is they can, you know, get a, a Tazos wallet. They can go here on object and they can retrieve their NFT of, uh, of my artwork. So that's part of the Patreon perks. And it costs them like, you know, I think there's, I would have given it away completely for free. I'm not here to make money <laughs> off of that because obviously they're already paying for the, you know, for the Patreon thing. But I think it comes out to like one thousandth of a penny. One one thousandth of a penny is the, the minimum transaction fee for the, uh, for the object market. So what I do is I put the artwork up, I wait for it to mint. Um, and then I drop the link in the Patreon discord and I say, here it is. Go grab it, and people can pay their one one thousandth of a penny transaction <laughs> fee for object, and they can get their NFT. I think I think that's one of my favorite things that has favorite things that has come out of you know hearing about like the NFT realm mm-hmm. is that it's a great way to money uh for money laundering. I hear a lot of people <laughs> talking about you know NFTs are just nothing but like a money laundering scheme. I mean, um, you could you could say that about almost all fine art, though. Exactly. I, mean, I, I say that about college. I say that, yeah. that college is the greatest money laundering, um, you know, I guess institution. Uh, you know, I, I went to UT Austin, 
and you know walk my whole entire time there it was just nothing but construction and i was like all right there has to be something going on here with like you know the donations that they get and you know yeah, the, tuition, the, you know, the endowments have, yeah yeah throw it into construction to justify you know raising tuition mm-hmm. um, yeah, and those some of those alumni gifts are are crazy. Um, I have a a relative uh, through marriage who has a building at at a college, and um, I mean that that was like millions and millions and millions of dollars that that person donated, obviously to mm-hmm. you know to have that. I think the business school there is named after them, and um, you know it's it's wild. I didn't even like that was never even part of my universe until you know I, I started to uh, to meet some people who. It was part of their universe, and I look at that, and I'm like, "This is the the amount of money that goes goes through these universities is insane, insane." Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it's you know, it, I'm not trying to speak bad about you know mm-hmm. the University of UT Austin. I'm not, mm-hmm. but you know, their football team has like the largest like just recruiting uh, uh, pool. They have like an access. Mm-hmm. I, I don't hold me to it, but like four billion dollars <laughs> like for recruiting, like some enormous amount of money mm-hmm. just for you know their football program and it, it blows my mind well uh also is, is ut austin a, is is this a, a big 10 school i don't really follow football that much but i know that um there's a, a thing called big 10 network mm-hmm. and i don't know what the 10 schools are but um they make so much money through professional channels people buy subscriptions to watch the big 10 content there's uh sponsorship in play i mean it's 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 not almost as large as the nfl Right. Like the NFL is a scale larger, but it is, I mean, for, for a quote unquote student or amateur level, allegedly, right, sport, something that is that goes through these universities. I mean, they're making enormous amounts of money. This is a commercial enterprise, right? Right. And now now you see, you know, not to go deep into, you know, the rabbit hole of college athletics, but, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you see, you know, these athletes, these college athletes you know being able to have these being able to make money now in college and you see mm-hmm. these student athletes driving lambos around campus and getting <laughs> multi-million dollar deals straight out of high school going into college it's a uh, which good for them all to them and they, they deserve to get paid mm-hmm. you know the university is making money off of them yeah that's one of these um one of these weird things about there's there's so many contradictions and and everything that that are that exist in our capitalist kind of system right now um it's like it's very very hard to to have any kind of pure like economic ideology in in a system like we have right where you look at this and you're like okay well inherently you know maybe we are over monetizing student athletics you look at that right in a vacuum you say that's potentially a true statement we can we can look at that and say like Maybe there are other avenues that should be funded differently or or more, and this should be reduced. You can look at that and say, okay, it's a bad thing that there's so much money pooling in this one aspect of what a university does. Mm-hmm. Then you can say, well, wait, because it's also unfair that these students aren't benefiting if there is all this money coming in. So you can open that up and you can say, okay, well, yes, let them get paid because now it will be fair because they're not having their labor exploited, right? right? Then like every single thing comes to like a decision tree. <laughs> and you and that, that was the thing for the longest time is that was always the big question is should they get paid and is it right for them to get paid? But I think it is. I mean, if the university is making that much money, yeah, they, you know, let them, let them get paid. But you know, it all kind of flows from those, from those original sins. There's a lot of money to be had and 
you know the the powers that be you know will will want to use that mm-hmm. but you know i i it varies from school to school but um the amount of money that is redistributed into other programs you know really should be heavily examined if they're making that much money so you're saying you know you know investing more into i guess you know i guess the professors that they bring onto campus or are you talking more so about the other athletic programs in general oh no 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 i'm talking about like if 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 you have a i'm just going to use a theoretical number i'm going to say a billion dollars right if your college football team brings in a billion dollars and i don't know if they make that much money maybe they make more i don't know i have no gauge i'm just saying hypothetically right if it's a billion dollars well great but where else is that needed? If you have a billion dollars, should you be providing completely free housing for your student body? Yes, probably. That shouldn't be something that comes out of a student loan, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a billion dollars coming in, maybe uh, you have an underserved, um, you know, if, you're, if your adjunct professors are making poverty wages, you know, under X amount of dollars per year, um, you know, raise that up to a living wage. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you have to start looking systemically at this stuff. And because I mean, there are there are some university uh, heads who are making millions or over a $10 million every year. And then you've got adjunct professors that are making $15,000 a year within this same system. I mean, like you, 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 if you have something that's generating that much revenue for the school, it has to be used for the betterment of the school. Mm-hmm. And the betterment of the school means better conditions for everybody who's involved in the operation of the school. Right. Right. I think, you know, with that, I think there's a lot of, you know, pushback as to as to how much is enough. I like, you know, how much can you really give? And I think that's mm-hmm. what a big challenge that people kind of argue against um, in a way is at what yeah. point do you just stop giving. <laughs> I, I guess. Um, yeah, it is true. I mean, there's a here in here in California, the uh, we have the UC system, which is you know the uh, the public universities. So we have uh, UCLA, UC Berkeley, so on and so forth. And uh, they have a really really robust union for facilities workers. So if you're somebody who works in in the operations field at one of these universities, you are uh, protected. And this is people who do things like landscaping, janitorial, food services, maintenance, equipment maintenance, all of these you know armies and armies and armies of people that keep the um the mechanism of the school running they have a very very good very strong union here in uh, california they uh they make a good living wage they have full benefits you know they have make sure that they have health care and make sure that they have good vacation time make sure that their working conditions are correct they have great union reps and uh, you know it seems to be working fairly and you have really excellently maintained facilities and the people who work there of course everybody has gripes with their with their job but you kind of minimize the sting of that by knowing that they have things like a retirement plan and you know a lot of them when they get up to be 50 55 years old are looking at a pretty good nest egg to augment you know things like social security so um you know it's like fair labor fair work for whatever, you know, I, I, other states and other universities, you know, I wish that they had the same kind of guarantees for the people that keep them in business. Right. And I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I can't speak upon, you know, what you know, the UT system has for their employees. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I know in some states, uh, you know, it's not as, uh, it's not as robust. I don't know what, what, uh, University of Texas does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, so, 
going back to so you mentioned you know your work in the Sundance. Uh, uh, oh, Sundance. Yeah, we're uh, we're like the punk rock sort of annoying mosquito that nips uh, nips away at uh, Sundance, and we've been doing it for twenty five plus years. So what 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 does that entail exactly? Well, we uh, it, what what we it was started in nineteen ninety five. Uh, I was not involved at that time. It was started by a group of filmmakers who didn't get into the Sundance Film Festival. They saw that uh, the Sundance Film Festival was, you know, highly commercialized and that a lot of the films that that got in were not necessarily truly independent films. They were films that, um, you know, had bankable celebrities and, and things like that. So, you know, even though you did get a, you know, a certain percentage of of truly independent films, you know, the mix was always a little bit slightly off. And as the years have gone on, uh, Sundance, like, let's say you submit a film to the Sundance Film Festival. Right. There's a very, very, very small chance, even smaller than you think that it's actually going to get programmed because a, the majority of screenings are already guaranteed before that submission process even begins. So um, studios or distributors or producers or known directors have already gotten those slots given to them. So whatever you're thinking, whatever those odds are, like, oh, if they play a thousand films during Slam Dan during Sundance and it's going to be great because I'm going to submit and I have, you know, a one in a thousand shot or whatever, like you don't because, you know, 800 of those have already been taken up by other films. So um, over the years, we've become more and more important and we pride ourselves on discovering new talent. Mm -hmm. So uh, new talent that's come through the festival that has become like really, really big. We're like, um, do you know the Russo brothers uh, who directed the Avengers Endgame? Right. right? So Russo brothers uh, started, you know, with the Slamdance Film Festival. Um, <clears throat> you know, just tons and tons and tons of other, you know, really cool people have uh, have come through here. There's Bong Joon-ho, who uh, did uh, Parasite and won the Academy Award, oh, yeah. you know, came through here. I'm to see that movie. Yeah, really, um, we have a, a whole list of uh, of people who've just started their career here because we, we give out opportunities to people who are not established. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is going to be the first time that we're turning to Park City, Utah since COVID. We've been doing it online for the last two years, and uh, we're just really excited to be back in person how how large has this uh grown um do you mean in terms of films attendees i, I would say in terms of films and, and attendees oh that's a that's a really good question i don't have our our statistics in front of me right now so i can't give you you know hard numbers but um i mean every screening that we do over uh, however long we do the festival uh, I think it's, you know, five, seven days, something like that. Um, I mean, every, every screening is always sold out. I mean, we have, wow. we're, we're at and above capacity on everything that we do. And we're also a, uh, an Academy qualifying festival. The way that like the Academy Awards work is that, uh, you either have to have a national distribution or you have to have played in New York or Los Angeles for a certain amount of time in a, in a, in a theatrical setting, or your film has to have screened at a, um, film festival, which is recognized by the Academy. We are an Academy recognized film festival so again like really really you know in terms of legitimacy uh people who come out of our our thing you know tend to walk away with like you know uh good agent representation and right. you know all kinds of stuff and our screenplay competition has been growing over the past couple of years as well uh one of our screenplay winners 
their screenplay just went on to be uh, produced by Netflix. It's a film called Day Shift. So uh, that was number one on Netflix, uh, like the first three weeks after it premiered, I think. So oh, wow. yeah, doing all kinds of cool stuff every year. We're, we're just really fostering a um, a lot of a lot of new and emerging talent. That's awesome. Yeah, that I, I that's my first time, you know, hearing about this. I, I I'm always curious to know, you know, how someone breaks into you know those larger uh, scenes as as something as like the Sundance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a I have a buddy who's going to film school in New Mexico, and I, you know, I ask him like, how do you even get one of those cool jobs and you know, working on you know these these films? Um, but going back to you know you getting started in photography, I guess what has been the journey from you know photography to to now? Um, wow, that's a uh, that's a I know that's kind of like a, <laughs> a window. Well, I started I, I started doing photography. I had a um. I, everything is going to sound like a little bit, everything that I ever, I always, I, I always feel awkward about this stuff because it, it sounds <laughs> like, um, everybody likes to hear a story about like, Oh, cream rises to the top, man. And it's just always, it's like, no, nah, like you got to get your hands dirty sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I, um, when I started doing photography, I, the only thing that really attracted me to, to the medium was that I knew that, um, I wanted to go to concerts. So <laughs> that was how it all started. Right. You know, I would ask my, uh, my, my mom and dad, I'd be like, Hey, um, can I have, can I have some money? I want to, you know, buy tickets for this concert. I want to go to it. My parents would go like, no, I don't want to give you money to go to do that. That's ridiculous. And my father, uh, was a, was a, was an artist. He was a, uh, he's a painter. Um, the family, uh, initially, you know, he lived in New York and he had a lot of, uh, you know, he would do, he would do galleries and shows and, and stuff like that. And my father, you know, was always really tied in with, um, with, with, pop culture kind of stuff he kept a he kept an eye on on these things and so he would go well you know if you just if you if you just had some talent <laughs> you know you could get in for free and i go how do you mean he goes what does that even mean well, yeah he's like i mean what does that mean he goes well you know you just go and uh you know you, you they don't they don't charge you if you're if you're if you're press and i go oh okay and so then i i made up fake letterhead and i would like fax it this is back when we had like fax modems right and i would fax it to the record label and i'd say hey i want to shoot this this thing here and you know the a lot of times i didn't hear back and i was like why not and it was because these were bands that i wanted to see these weren't like necessarily like big popular bands and my father goes why are you doing why are you sending in for those things you know you should be photographing celebrities that's what photographers do um pick the biggest bands and then go and photograph them so i said really oh, okay so i uh i i did and then all of a sudden well all these big touring acts and stuff that were that were coming through i was photographing the biggest ones because the biggest ones responded <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then i was able to start selling some of those photographs and um you know, I, I kind of got uh, a good reputation for for taking good pictures. And, um, you know, so I started doing things that were not necessarily concert or backstage focused. I started doing stuff that was uh, editorial, you know, uh, things that they would, um, you know, schedule me to, uh, to to actually work directly with the talent. And, uh, you know, I've continued that relationship Um just before COVID, we I did a whole bunch of work with uh, a legendary uh, uh, bass player uh, from Funkadelic, Bootsy Collins. Um, I've done augmented reality projects with Devo, uh, okay. so that was kind of cool. I like those guys. Um, I'm not like a super metal guy, but um, 
I've directed VR pieces with uh, Disturbed, and they've got you know a huge fan base. Right. Um, this is all stuff like in the last five years, right? So um, you know, and I, I, I I'm still making music videos. I'm going to be directing a new one coming up, uh, coming up soon for uh, you know an artist that uh, I've worked with before who's doing like a little bit more of a harder sound. Um, but you know, I've worked with uh, with Warner Brothers Records and Capitol Records and right. whoever. So one thing just kind of led to another because once you have a good reputation doing doing work in one area, um, you know, they'll trust you to do other stuff, you know, <laughs> like, so it's funny you know. that, you know, you wanted to go to concerts. Um, mm -hmm. so when I was in school, you know, I, I wanted to go to concerts as well. Being in Austin, you know, it's a mm -hmm. music capital. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, I didn't have enough money to go up to all the concerts that I wanted to. So I had a, I had a friend that was part of this, I guess this, uh, this club within the university called Austin Underground. And mm -hmm. they would go out and they would interview, you know, the the acts that would come into town and you know, they would reach out to, I guess, their whoever's in charge of their press or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I Ooh, met with sorry. my friend. I didn't have any, you know, interview experience, but I just showed up and I was like, hey, I'll just uh record for you. I'll just hold the camera. And so that was my way of getting into the concert for free. I didn't I don't know. I didn't, I was too nervous to do the interviews and I probably should have done them doing this now, but I, I just got my foot in the door just to just hold the camera and act like I was doing something to get into these concerts. <laughs> you know, I got to see, you know, Matt and Kim for free and, and uh, got to meet them. And so that's funny. Yeah, you can, um, you can interview and meet a ton of cool people. If you, uh, you know, if you hook yourself up into South by, have you done South by? I have. So that's the frustrating thing about, so there's a lot of frustrating things about South by. Mm -hmm. So when I got to UT, I wasn't 21. So a lot of these things that were going on, I was like 19 at the time. I couldn't get in. And so mm -hmm. I just kind of, you know, it was my sophomore year when I got there and I would just kind of stumble into what I could do. And, uh, you know, at the time it was ready player one, um, mm -hmm. coming out and they had a huge event and I met Mia Khalifa there um met her there and you know i just would run into random people just there at south by and so i was like oh i can't wait till i'm you know 21 to like buy a pass and get into all these events and then like the next year my mom comes into town i have family in town and then the next year is covid so i haven't mm. been able to do you know go out there and and, and you know, find people to interview um partly because you know south by happens when i'm working mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, i've always wanted to and i I have, I've, I met these guys through the university who they have this channel. I actually, so let me reprocess my thoughts here. Sorry. I interviewed this guy that was a former Excel champion, Microsoft Excel champion. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did an interview with him. Link, this is going on YouTube, right? Yeah. Yeah, link that above this part of the interview if you can, because I want to find that video. I'm, oh, I, yeah, I'll, I have I'll, no I'll, idea what that means. <laughs> I'll, I'll shoot it to you. It, it's, I, it was, it's a world that I had no idea that it existed. I didn't even know you can compete doing Excel. But so I interviewed him, um, and you know I've kind of you know just been following him and his brother, and they have have a channel called School of Hard Knocks. You probably have come across their TikTok videos because, you know, they're huge. And, you know, they go around Austin and, you know, other parts of Texas asking people, what advice can you give to yourself at, you know, at the age of 20 to make money? Mm -hmm. And, you know, South by was a gr great opportunity for them because they ran into Mark Cuban and they, mm -hmm. you know, did a quick video with them and, you know, they're, they're killing it. You know, South by is a great opportunity to meet people. But anyways, that's just my spiel. Oh, yeah. South by. <laughs> yeah. South by is fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I from what I've gone to for South by, I, you know, I've been able to meet, uh, you know, 
StockX. I don't know if you're familiar with the the CEO of uh, the marketplace for reselling shoes and other pop culture mm-hmm. items. You know, he he, uh, he I, I have a feeling that they might be a complex con coming up though. Yeah, I'm sure that, 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 that yeah, sure that seems like the kind of place. Yeah, it's, it, they're heavily involved in you know sne- sneaker mm-hmm. culture and. It's, I guess yeah. it's a stock market for sneakers and sneaker reselling. And they've introduced like baseball cards and other, you know, items that people are trying and to get. I don't, I don't understand sneaker culture like at all. For me, you know, I, it's just, it's just, uh, it makes no sense to me. I now, see, now I custom Doc Martens, I have a huge collection of limited and custom Doc Martens, but sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing that people who wear Doc Martens, they, they love the brand. Like they'll mm-hmm. they'll buy those shoes up. And I tried to get involved in you know sneaker culture when I was in college just to be able to make some money and resell them. But I, it's just it's so much. And it's you know, the people that I'm not trying to talk bad about them, but the people that are involved in sneaker culture, they're kind of like if you're an outsider, they kind of just shun you away, like in a way. <laughs> And that's what it's I'm, like. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm half joking about. It. We, uh, we did a partnership at Slam Dance Film Festival a couple of years ago with uh, Vans, mm-hmm. and uh, people could come in, and all the filmmakers would get a customized uh, Vans sneaker, and you could oh, have yeah, like your, um, yeah, you could actually have. It wasn't even just like printed stuff on there. Like the in the back of the sole, they had these great like actual 3D uh, pressed into the rubber. You could write whatever you wanted, and you could have like a different thing on each uh each you know shoe the right and the left and i i love uh all that kind of stuff those were, that was a really really cool uh tie-in and it was great that our filmmakers were able to get something like that for themselves yeah i mean when i say like sneaker culture i'm, I'm talking about yeah. like the deep people that have been buying them from like the jordans from like the 90s and you know, oh yeah no i know i know what you're but, talking about i know what you're talking about i i i i love bands and um, yeah, that that's uh as far as like bands, like when they were making a lot of like the shoes that they were back then, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, <laughs> I it goes in cycles. Like now, now it's um now it's back to the Jordans. Like back uh back in the mid 2000s, it was like you know all the Echo stuff was what was popping off, um and people would you know you would go to a, a, a shoe signing. And the artist, uh, whoever, you know, who the, who was brought in for it, like they'd be, you know, doing custom illustrations and stuff and, you know, painting on the vans and, or excuse me, the echoes and whatever. Before that, it was Converse coming back in. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there was doing a lot of custom Converse stuff. I mean, it, you know, all the shoe stuff is cyclical. It's like anything else. So it's, it's kind of cool though. I love it because they, um, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of, of fashion art expression but it still is you know you know it is based on you know kind of what's what's trending right yeah and, that's uh, where i was trying to go with it i i was trying to say like back in the day with bands mm-hmm. would just make like their generic bands and mm-hmm. then as i grew grew older you know they would start to make you know the bands that had like the rubber duckies and i'd go buy those <laughs> or like the bands with like tropical islands on them yeah so anyways but yeah i i, I like that brands are doing that more and more to be able to show that artistic creation instead of, yeah. instead of just being a plain old jane shoe oh yeah and if you if you uh if you don't know about complex con um uh do you watch channel five uh andrew callahan yeah i i mean i've, I've seen his TikToks um yeah. on there uh people should check out uh channel five has a, a really really funny uh youtube video of going to complex con and talking to people you need to check that out it's really cool i'll, I'll, I'll definitely check it out um so i i 
I, you know, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, okay. where can people, you know, find you on social media? Yeah, totally, man. Uh, check out phantomastronaut.com. That has all the socials on it. But if you want to shoot directly, like just search Phantom Astronaut on TikTok. You can find all the uh, the cool stuff that's going on with that project. Uh, additionally, I started a YouTube channel very recently. So we don't have a whole bunch of traction on it and we're still testing out content, but uh, that's just the same thing, Phantom Astronaut. And uh, that's the handle at Phantom Astronaut on YouTube. And, um, you know, if anybody wants to, uh, to, you know, shoot me a note or, you know, tell me how much uh, they're, you know, they hate AI artwork or whatever, <laughs> you know, any of those places are good places to yell at me. So hook it up. <laughs> so what's one last final message that I guess that you would have for everybody? Um, whether it be, you know, in, in the creative space or just AI. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would say that I would say figure out what you want to say with your with your artwork that you're creating and then figure out how you want to say it. And any like everything else is kind of BS, right? Mm -hmm. Like find your find your message, find your medium. Don't worry about what other people think about, you know, whatever combination, whatever, you know, you figure out that works for you. Um, you know, for me right now, for this one project on TikTok, it's AI combined with really zeitgeisty horror stories. Like a lot of the uh, the stories that we 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 create are, you know, the villains are are sort of systemic issues. Like we had uh, the most recent one is um, about a uh, like a slumlord who you know shuts off the heat, you know, to uh, to renters who have a rent control on their apartments um you know i've got other ones in there about you know people who take revenge because they're not accepted by their families uh you know it's stuff that people deal with every day and we're exploring that through the lens of of horror and i think that that kind of makes for the most interesting horror because it's directly relatable but for you whatever that might be you know find what you want to say figure out how you want to say it and then if anybody tells you that that's a stupid idea chuck them the bird and do it anyway <laughs> that's a great message chuck them the bird <laughs> <laughs> that's it for today's episode i will catch you on the next episode of the flytrap podcast